Your identity, who you are, should guide and direct all of your activity. Your identity should guide and direct all of your activity. And this includes how you respond to difficulty, how you respond to that spouse, that child, that coworker, that boss, that colleague, whoever it is, fill in the blank for you. So let's first remember who Peter is writing to before we jump into the text. Remember, Peter is writing to Christians. He is writing this letter to Christians, the people who are scattered across ancient Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey. They, they have heard the good news of the gospel. They have heard that Jesus has lived, died, and been resurrected on their behalf for the forgiveness of their sins, and they've placed their faith in him. They've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Second, these people are exiles. These people are sojourners. These people are living in a land that definitely doesn't feel like home. Maybe you feel somewhat similar to them, or maybe you have. Maybe you feel like, I just don't belong. Maybe God feels distant right now. Or maybe you just have this inkling, this, this, this thought that the world isn't how it should be. This is who Peter is writing to. And because of that, he tells them, set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What is Peter saying? Peter is saying that eternity matters. Eternity desperately matters. Your identity, who you are in Christ, should guide all of your activity. And for us who follow Christ, that means we're going to live our lives a little different from how the world would expect us to. It means that we don't live exclusively for the best marriage, or the next promotion, or some sweet vacation, or a cushy retirement account, if we've even thought about retirement. Whatever it is, fill in the blank for yourself. We don't live for those things. Instead, what Peter has showed us, we live so that others will glorify God. We live so that others will glorify God. Our life is not just about ourselves. Our life is about the glory of God. And that's going to lead us to do some things differently. That's going to lead us to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. It's going to lead us to offer sacrifices of praise, to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. It's going to lead us to submit to those in authority over us as servants of God. And it's going to lead us to love and honor our spouse in the complementary and sacrificial way that God has created us to do. We are going to live so that others glorify God. And this morning, what we're going to see, we're going to see that this influence is how we respond to those who bother us. We are going to be called to bless those who bother us. We are called to bless those who bother us. So if you have a Bible, there should be one under your chair or under the chair next to you. I invite you to open up to 1 Peter chapter 3, that's going to be on page 1015. We are going to progressively work our way through 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. And I'm going to start by just reading verse 8 and 9. So once you get there, I'll begin reading. We're going to start in verse 8 and 9. Finally, all of you, Peter's already addressed a couple different subgroups of people. So now he's broadening the umbrella. He's saying, everyone, all of the people in these scattered churches, listen up. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Love one another like family, otherwise. 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. Narrowly defined, blessing is desiring another person's eternal good and then going to God in prayer asking for that, knowing that he is sovereign. Blessing is desiring another person's eternal good and then going to God and asking him for that in prayer. Think about the people who are bothering you right now, the people who violate your preferences over and over. What would it look like to go to God, ask for his grace in their life? What would that look like? Probably be pretty hard for most of us, myself included. And inevitably, as we pray for people, we tend to grow in love for them. So as you pray for these people, what would it look like to continue to move towards them in love, serving them, speaking well of them, honoring them, even if they're your enemy? See, the good news of the gospel doesn't just command us to do good things. It tells us that we have received the ultimate good. As those who have done a good bit of bothering in our lives, we have still been blessed. And I know for myself, I am not excluded from that category of people who have done some bothering in their life, especially before becoming a believer in Christ. So before becoming a believer, I had these two really good Christian friends, two really good friends. Their names are Laura and Julia. They were sisters. And the only reason I can use the word friend to describe our relationship is because of how they treated me, not in how I treated them. See, they would regularly like, invite me over for meals at their house, invite me to their church events, and I would respond, not accordingly. <laughs> I would respond with blowing them off, canceling our plans, even laughing about them behind their back. And their dad was the same way. He graciously persevered in desiring my good. He would invite me to all the events that their church was having, invite me to dinner at his house with him. He even went so far, I, I still don't know why he did this, he even went so far as to hire me part-time with his contracting company to do demolition work to do demolition work. And if you're looking at me, you're thinking like, I can't even imagine demolition work in, in this guy. Like, it just didn't make sense. Professionally, like, the most unwise thing he could have done. But spiritually, but spiritually, he wanted to live so that others would glorify God, myself included. Myself included. See, despite my worst efforts, they persevered and desiring my good. They persevered in praying for me. And after coming to Christ, like I am super thankful to have friends who have done that for me. Super thankful. See, if we're honest, blessing those who bother us is, is totally foreign to how our hearts operate. It is the most radical of concepts that I could probably stand up here and tell you to do. But in light of who God has made us, it makes perfect sense. So I'm going to give you three reasons, not my reasons, but I'm going to give you three reasons that Peter has for why we should bless those who bother us. First of all, we should bless those who bother us because we will receive an eternal blessing. We will receive an eternal blessing. So if you have your Bible, go back. We're going to turn to verse 14. Actually, verse 9. We're going to end in verse 14. We're going to start in verse 9, and I'm going to read aloud. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you are called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, 
Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. See, at face value, blessing those who bother us is about as counterintuitive as it gets. It's like asking me to wield a sledgehammer in the vicinity of other living human beings. It just, like, doesn't make sense. It shouldn't happen. But as God's people, as those who have been blessed, and those who will receive an eternal blessing, it does make sense. We should bless those who bother us. Remember who Peter is writing to. Remember who you are if you are a follower in Christ. You have been chosen before the foundation of the world. You have been forgiven of your sins, past, present, and future. You have been redeemed, brought back from the penalty and the power of sin. You have been adopted as a son or daughter of God. They are blessed. We are blessed. Therefore, we should bless others. See, Psalm 34 is what Peter cites here next. In verse 10 to 12, he's citing David's words in Psalm 34. He wants us to see a little bit more about what it means to receive an eternal blessing. What does it mean that we're going to receive an eternal blessing? So he starts by saying, for to love life and see good days. To love life and see good days. For many of us, when we're bothered, when things are difficult, we desire and long for a better tomorrow. And we usually think that better tomorrow is just going to come up like on Monday morning, and it doesn't. Tomorrow is not going to be the best day of your life unless Christ returns. And we shouldn't expect any of the remaining days of our lives to be the best life, best life now. Instead, what this is referring to is Revelation 21. This is pointing us forward to the ultimate restoration, the new heavens, the new earth that Christ will bring, will bring when he returns. To love life and see good days is to set our hope not on tomorrow being the best day ever, but to set our hope on eternity. Eternity matters. See, when Christ returns, those feelings that we have of the world not being exactly the way it should be right now, those will be corrected. Sin, suffering, all of our pain, all of our tears will be wiped away. And when Christ returns, there will be no room for evil speech, for deceit, for speaking evil, as these verses talk to. There will be no room for that. So in light of our eternity, we should live now for the future that we're being prepared for. We should live now for the future we're being prepared for. And why, should, why, why can we even have hope in doing this now? Like, this isn't our best life now. Why should we live and have that sort of hope? Well, verse 13 and 14 tells us that this blessing won't be taken away. No matter what sort of physical, emotional, whatever it is, sort of harm or suffering you face, this blessing can't be taken away. Listen to verse 13 and 14. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. See, it's hard for us to make sense of why there is suffering in this world until we remember that this world is not yet all that it's made to be. This world is longing and groaning and anticipation 
of the Savior who will, will come and restore everything. And let's remember that this eternal blessing is not up to our own strength to keep. It's not up to our own weakness and feeble attempts to keep it. Thank God it's not. Remember in chapter 1, verse 5, it says, By God's power, by God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In this, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you are grieved by various kinds of trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Eternity matters. Eternity matters. God's power is guarding you. These trials are for a little while in light of eternity. How would remembering this eternal blessing that you are going to receive motivate you to move towards others and bless them even when they bother you? How would remembering this eternal blessing motivate you to move towards others and, and bless them even when, you bother, when they bother you? Second reason that Peter gives us, we're going to turn now to verse 14 to 17. Verse 14 to 17. The second reason that Peter gives us for why we should bless those who bother us is because Jesus is the Lord of trials. Jesus is sovereign over everything, including our difficulty. So listen aloud as I read verse 14 to 17. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. We can bless those who bother us because Jesus is the Lord of trials. He is the Lord of everything, including our trials. All right, think back to that first question I asked you. How do you respond to the difficulties in life? For most of us, we immediately had a specific person come to mind, the difficulties that someone, fill in the blank, causes you. What do that difficult person and all of the difficult people in your life have in common? They all share one thing. What do they all have in common? They all have the ability to confirm your worst fear. They all have the ability to confirm your worst fear, which is that you are not in control. You are not in control. For example, think about what happens when your spouse changes your schedule. I know for me, I get agitated. I don't know about you guys. Or think about your roommate when they, despite your best invitation, they regretfully decline to wash their dishes for like the 17th day in a row. And this pile is just like mounting up in the sink. How do you respond? You get angry. They are messing up your plan for the future, and you begin to fear them because you realize you can't control what they do. You can't control how they influence your future. See, we get scared when we're not in control. We long for control. We long to live in the future in which we have imagined and can see it through to fruition. But in reality, we're not in control, and that's scary. 
And that influences how we interact with others. So how do we go from being afraid of others? How do we go from being bothered by them and instead turn to bless them? It's nothing less than an exchange of fears. And Peter gives this to us in verse 14 and 15. He gives us two commands, back to back. He gives us a what not to do, gives us a negative, followed by a positive. What should we do instead? A what not to do and a what to do if you want to go from being afraid of others to actually being able to bless them. So let's start with verse 14. Peter's going to give us our what not to do. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Let's remember who's writing this. Let's remember the author of 1 Peter is Peter. This is the same Peter who, for fear of what others could do to him physically, he denied Jesus on three separate occasions. Let's remember who he's writing to. He is writing to exiles, people who are not home. They are living in and amongst neighboring peoples who could cause them political, physical harm. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. These are not light words. They are not intended to be heard lightly. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled is a serious command. But why? what alleviates our fears? What alleviates those things? In verse 15, we see what does. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See, fears aren't alleviated when you perceive to be in control. That is a temporary alleviation of fears, but that's not ultimate. It's not eternal. Fears are only alleviated when you trust the one who is sovereignly in control of everything. That's why it says, in your hearts, in your hearts. See, knowing the truth about Jesus being sovereign over everything is the kind of truth that's meant to like check in at our head level, but then like a drippy faucet kind of like meander down to our hearts and take root there. Because what grows up out of our hearts reveals what we trust in. So the truth of knowing Jesus is the Lord of all trials is not something you're just supposed to know about. It's something you're meant to depend on. Following Jesus, discipleship, is not just this intellectual ascent. Following Jesus is the day after day after day dependence on what he has done for you and hope in his eternal sovereignty. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Honor. Set apart as most worthy hallowed, worship, Christ the Lord as holy. See, there are a lot of different names given to, descriptive names given to help us understand who Jesus is in Scripture, and some of them include King of Kings, Lord of Lords, name above all names, author and perfecter of life, the Alpha and the Omega, the one who upholds the universe, by the word of his power. If that's not holy, I don't know what is. See, the question you have to answer, the question I have to answer, is Jesus just a teacher, a good guy, or is he holy? Is he worthy of my trust, my day after day dependence in him? Or do I settle for trust in myself? Do I trust that he is the Lord of all trials, or do I sovereignly try to arrange my future to avoid any sort of difficulty? See, the scary and liberating thing all at once 
is that you are not in control. Jesus is. And that is a good thing. That is very good news because Jesus, as Lord of all trials, will only allow what is for your ultimate good and his glory. He will only allow what is for your ultimate good and his glory. We have to wrestle with that truth every day because it's not how our hearts naturally tell us to think. We have to believe this. We have to depend on this. And for many of us, those people that bother us are the people you're likely to spend 40 hours or more per week with. Think about work, honestly. Think about work for a moment. You're probably likely to face some difficulty there. I know my wife is no exception to this. Recently, she was working on a big project with a colleague. There was a simple miscommunication that led to a mistake. And instead of the colleague and her talking about together, her coworker went straight to the boss and said, you know what? Jen did it. It's her fault. You can only imagine what Jen felt at that moment. Angry, betrayed, shocked. Why, why would this happen? I didn't, I, this is unjust. Why would it happen? Thankfully, and not coincidentally, Jen's discipleship partner that same week had a similar experience at work. And so she suggested they memorize Luke chapter 6, verse 27 together. By God's grace, they were both called to memorize Luke chapter 6, verse 27, which says this, Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. There's really no way of getting around it in that passage. We are called to bless those who bother us. See, this idea of blessing those who bother us is not original to Peter. It is original to Jesus. Peter spent a lot of time with Jesus, so he picks it up, and he's seen it be true. So he tells us to do it. So how does that apply to us day to day? How did that apply to Jen? The next day, Jen still felt angry. She still felt hurt. She still felt bitter towards this person. I think I'd feel the same way. But by God's sovereignty, by the one who is guarding her through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed, by his strength, not on her goodness, he kept prompting her, kept reminding her of that passage in Luke 6, 27. Pray for her. Bless her. Speak well of her. And so even though she didn't want to, even though it went against everything she desired at that moment, she started to pray for her. And almost immediately, God reminded her of why we should pray for our enemies. God reminded her of how, how blessed she is, how great this blessing she already has. And he showed her that the fear of failure at work, which motivated her colleague to do this, is what she should be praying for, for freedom from that. She, Jen didn't just pray for a resolution and the ability to keep her job and make sure everything was like ironed out perfectly. She prayed for the good of her coworker because that's what blessing those who bother us means. She prayed that her coworker would be free from the failure, from the fear of failure at work. Let's see if I can say that right once. <laughs> she prayed for her ultimate good, not just for her own situation to work out. See, if we're honest, it's going to require perseverance. It's going to require not our strength. It's going to require dependence on the one who has blessed us, on the one who has called us out of darkness, if we're going to bless those who bother us. I don't bring this story up to say, my wife is great. I bring this story up to point us to the God who is sovereign. What would it look like for you to bless those who bother you 
based on knowing that Jesus is the Lord of all trials. Think about your difficulty right now. Think about your difficulty right now. If you knew that God is allowing it only for your ultimate good and his eternal glory, how would it change your perspective? How would it change your perspective? How would it motivate you to move towards those who bother you and instead respond with blessing, with going to our heavenly father, asking for his grace over their life? Guys, this isn't hard. This is hard, excuse me. This isn't easy. <laughs> Just lied. <laughs> this is really hard. <laughs> and so it makes sense that Peter's going to give us one more reason. He's going to give us one more scriptural, biblical reason why we should bless those who bother us. And that final reason is in verse 18 to 22. That reason is because your destiny is with Jesus. Your destiny is with Jesus. Let me start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. For Christ also suffered once for sins. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. The essence of the gospel is this. Jesus has paid our penalty as our substitute to bring us to God. Jesus has paid our penalty as our substitute to bring us to God. Specifically, this verse tells us that Jesus also suffered. Jesus also suffered. See, the path to glory for Jesus was filled with suffering, and therefore we shouldn't be surprised if our path has a little bit of suffering along the way of following him. For Jesus, the path to eternal glory was filled with suffering, so we shouldn't be that shocked if as we follow him, our path is also a little full of suffering. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. His suffering was unique. The suffering of Jesus was unique. He suffered in a once-for-all-time sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. But they weren't his sins. He was perfect, fully obedient to God, fully desiring to live his life for his, for his Father's will. So why did he suffer? He suffered for our sins. He was the righteous. We are the unrighteous. We have bothered God. He has blessed us at the cost of his son. Jesus died to pay our penalty as our substitute and to bring us to God. Why did he do this? Verse 18 says, to bring us to God. See, the wages of our sin is death, according to Romans 6.23. The wages of our sin is death eternal separation from God. And that makes pretty logical sense when you think about what sin is. Sin is saying, no thanks God, I will turn my back on you, I have my own way of going, and I trust in myself more than you. Eternally, draw that out to its logical conclusion, that's separation from God. But Jesus has died to pay that penalty and to change our way of thinking so that we don't believe that lie. He's done so to bring us to God. And the ultimate mystery and mercy of the gospel all at once is this, the Son of God has bore the wrath of God so that you could be adopted as a child of God. The Son of God has borne the wrath of God so that you could be adopted as a child of God. The gospel is totally good news, and it is totally unwarranted for us who are unrighteous. And that's why believing in Christ, believing in his life, death, and resurrection 
is the most important thing that we can do. We are totally unworthy of being brought to God, but through faith in the one, the righteous one who died for the unrighteous, the one who suffered so that those who bothered could be blessed, we are brought to God. We know him as our father. So yes, it is, it is true. Jesus did suffer. He died, according to this passage, a bodily death in the flesh. He was hung on a cross for the penalty of sins. But, but he was also raised from the tomb. He was raised by the Holy Spirit, according to this passage. And his victory, after suffering, gives us hope for eternity. The only reason that destiny with Jesus is a good thing is because his suffering wasn't the last word. For us, the bothering, the unjust suffering, is not the last word for us. Our difficulties in life are not the end. Victory is. Victory is. Eternity matters. Guys, think about this. Think about as we walk this path, as we walk this, this journey, this lifelong journey of day after day, trust in Jesus, the one who suffered on our behalf. We shouldn't be surprised when we suffer, but we should also set our hope a little bit higher. We should set our hope on the truth that Christ has been raised from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and so too will we who believe in him. And verse 19 to 22 kind of recaps the significance of Christ's victory, of Christ's victory. Originally, when I was reading this passage, and Matt asked if I consider preaching, I looked at it and I went, maybe next week, maybe next week. This, was a, this kind of stumped me at first, but what I want us to see in verse 19 to 22 is that the victory of Jesus has secured our eternal destiny, and it's worth hoping in. So listen to verse 19 to 22. Jesus was raised by the Spirit, made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection, through the victory of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and has seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. This victory has been proclaimed over all, even to the wicked angels in Genesis 6, right before the flood. That's who the spirits in prison are. And this victory is meant to be read in light of all of Scripture. See, every story, including Noah's, is meant to point us to Jesus. Think about Noah's story. Noah and the eight persons, his family, Noah including himself, that's eight persons. The eight persons were saved from God's wrath through the flood in the ark. It was God's, mean, God's means of offering salvation, offering hope, offering, offering relief from unjust suffering, forgiveness of sins. And the flood points us towards the cross. By our union with Christ, the one who has suffered and borne the floodwaters of God's wrath for us so we wouldn't have to, Jesus is the one who has borne the floodwaters of God's wrath 
so we wouldn't have to, we are guaranteed of our eternal relief from the bothers, the difficulties of this world, and guaranteed of salvation, forgiveness of sins. And this is the same Jesus who has been raised and is above every authority and power. And this only matters if you are united to him. See, the call of the gospel is not just to know more about it. The call of the gospel is to place your saving faith in him. See, God waited patiently while the ark was being built. He announced his good news, and yet only eight people believed. Lots of people heard about the ark. It was impossible to miss. It was massive. Lots of people knew about it, but only a few believed. Lots of people have heard about Jesus. Lots of people have heard about the cross. But who has believed? Who has believed? See, the, the work of the gospel for us is to believe in him whom God has sent, the one who bore the floodwaters of God's wrath so we wouldn't have to. See, for Jesus, we know that our destiny is secure because we're united with him. And the best picture for union with Jesus that we have is baptism. That's why this passage ends with a little description of what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save. Only Jesus saves. Baptism doesn't save. Only Jesus saves. Think about what happens at baptism. See, last week we had unseasonably warm weather, so we did an outdoor baptism, and six lucky people not only declared their faith to all who heard, but they also battled potential frostbite, <laughs> hypothermia. Um, they got in the baptismal, but what were they doing in that moment? They weren't, they weren't asking God for forgiveness right then. They had already asked, for, asked God for forgiveness, not according to their own works or according to their own merits, but through union with Christ. Their faith was in him. And when the person who is baptized is submerged, they are symbolizing, declaring to the world that they've been united to Christ in his death to sin. And then when they are raised up out of the water, they're, uniting, they're been united to Christ in his resurrection, in his ultimate victory. That's why the gospel is good news. Not only are we united to a suffering savior, we're united to a victorious, conquering king. See, for Jesus... Suffering was vindicated by exaltation. Suffering was vindicated by exaltation. For those of us who follow Jesus, suffering will be vindicated by exaltation. Your destiny is with Jesus if you are united to him by faith. How would this change your, your perspective on those who bother you? How would knowing that ultimately, no matter what difficulty you are going through right now, that your destiny is with Jesus, how would this enable you, motivate you, to move towards those who bother you in order to bless them, in order to pray God's grace over them? Why would we not want them to also be united to Jesus? What could possibly keep us from pursuing that? This is the good news of the gospel. And if you're not yet a believer... I don't want you to think that blessing those who bother us is how we receive salvation or earn salvation. Excuse me, we do receive salvation. Blessing those who bother us is not how we earn salvation. Instead, blessing those who bother us is our response, our act of faith and obedience to the one who has blessed us even though we bothered him. 
So think about these two questions. Who is bothering you right now? How can you bless them? Who is bothering you right now? How can you bless them? And again, if you have not yet come to faith in Christ, this is not the primary question you should be asking. The primary question for you, this is one of the questions, the primary question for you is, do I believe that Jesus is holy? Do I believe that Jesus has died and borne the the wrath of God so that I could be adopted as a child of God? Has he died for the forgiveness of my sins? Is he the one I place my ultimate saving faith in? And for those of us who do believe in Jesus, who have accepted this good news and been born again to a living hope, we should bless those who bother us for three reasons. For three reasons. Because we will receive an eternal blessing. We will receive an eternal blessing. Tomorrow's not going to be the best day ever. But when Christ returns, things will be righted the way they should be. That's hope for exiles. That's hope for those who feel like things just aren't the way they're supposed to be right now. And we can bless those who bother us because Jesus is the Lord of all trials. Jesus is the Lord of all trials. He is sovereign over everything. He is only allowing what is for your good and his eternal glory. And we can bless those who bother us. We can bless those who bother us because our destiny is with Jesus. Our destiny is is with Jesus. Eternity matters. This living hope that we have been born into should guide all of our activity. And setting our hope fully on the grace to be revealed at the return of Jesus Christ, we should bless those who bother us. So I'll ask one more time. Who is bothering you right now? How can you bless them? Who is bothering you right now? How can you bless them? See, in a few moments, we're going to have the worship team come back up, and we are going to sing songs of blessing to our God who has, despite our bothering, has blessed us eternally through Christ. We're going to respond with the only thing that makes sense to do. We're going to worship him for who he is and what he has done. And at any point during the next three songs, I want to invite you to actually pray for the people who are currently bothering you. Pray for the people who are currently bothering you. We're going to have prayer team members in the back under the green signs that say prayer. And what I invite you to do is go back and talk with them, speak with them, or talk to your neighbor. Pray for the people who are bothering you, not just for for all your situations to be made perfect, but pray for their ultimate good. Pray for God's grace in their life. Allow God to sovereignly work in your heart to grow you in love for even those who might who you might call enemies. And the third way we're going to respond during this time of worship is we're going to take communion. See, communion is a shared meal for those who have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, for those who have placed their faith in his work on their behalf. And when we take communion, what we're doing is we are remembering. We're remembering the extent of our bothering caused Jesus' body to literally be broken, literally be broken. His blood was actually poured out. His body was broken. His blood was poured out for the forgiveness of our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So when we take communion, we celebrate, we worship. We worship the one who has paid it all because we couldn't. 
So again, I invite you to consider this question. Who's bothering you? How can you bless them? What I'm going to do now is I'm going to invite the worship team back up, and I'm going to pray for us to close as we transition from a time of hearing about God's word to a time of letting the Spirit guide us, guide us to response. What does it look like for you to respond to the truths of who God is? How do we do that in worship? How do we do that with those who bother us? Jesus is in control. Jesus is sovereign. Let us worship him.